Now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful looking day shaping up here in Kamloops. Solid blue sky out there. Not a cloud in sight. Fantastic. Uh, we got a jam-packed show for you this Monday. We're going to talk a lot about uh, today's ICBC changes. Uh, we'll dive into that first with Richard McCandless in just a little bit. And then in the back half of the show, we'll have former Premier Ujal Dosanjh, former NDP Premier, who is firing at the current NDP government and its decision to make some of these changes. So we'll hear from him a little bit later. We'll also hear from Nisconolith Chief Judy Wilson on the weekend wildfires in her neck of the woods, as well as her concerns around the removal of records from BC's land titles office here in Kamloops. But first up, uh, we're proud to welcome the program, the former mayor of Cash Creek, John Ranta. Good morning, John. How are you? Good morning. Good, thanks. How about you? I am well. You thought you were out. You thought you were done, and then NL called and dragged you back in. <laughs> Well, it's a pleasure to hear the bell-shaped tones of your voice again. <laughs> I'll give you 10 minutes to stop talking like that. Uh, John, uh, you're a longtime former Greyhound driver, also a longtime uh, former mayor of Cash Creek. It's been literally about six months since Greyhound folded up its tent and went home in Western Canada. Um, first and foremost, your assessment of whether there's been enough replacement services jumping up to provide, especially to smaller communities like yours, uh, the services you guys need. Is it, are, we, are we where we need to be or no? I, I don't think so yet, uh, but, you know, I have great faith in, in the free enterprise system and where there's a dollar to be made, I think, the, I think uh, business people will fill the gap. But, uh, you know, there is that e-bus service that goes Kamloops to Vancouver and Kelowna to Vancouver uh, on a daily basis. And they recently put on extra runs on the weekends. So, uh, you know, it's starting to ramp up, but it's not where it needs to be for the smaller communities in British Columbia. Yeah, I heard an interesting comment the other day about how it's uh, largely smaller communities uh, to Kamloops North, as well as through the Caribou, north of you, uh, that are really being left out in this thing. What's the cost? if there's no bus service to smaller communities like your Cache Creeks, your 100-mile houses, your Clearwaters, places like that? I mean, what's the damage to people who live there? Well, well, it's really challenging for people that need to get uh, someplace in British Columbia for appointments or otherwise. Uh, and and uh, the only option that is available currently is the Health Connections bus, and that's sort of uh, supposed to be for people that are uh, traveling for health appointments. But if they're not full, they will take uh, riders uh, other than that. And I think that runs between Williams Lake and Kamloops as well as between Lillooet and Kamloops. So there, there is a way to get a, a little bit around, but certainly it's nothing compared to what the service Greyhound used to provide it had. Yeah, but on the other hand, Greyhound's business sense, I mean, I don't know, I trust a loaf of bread over what they were doing. Uh, from your perspective, I know the, the province's transportation minister says, listen, the transportation board is going to expedite all requests. We know of some, as you mentioned, e-bus and others who have managed to run that gauntlet and get out the other end and begin offering services. Others have had a real problem getting starting. Uh, from a fiscal model perspective, it, does it make financial sense? Can a buck be turned running a bus service through the interior or no? Well, uh, it certainly couldn't be done uh, the way Greyhound was running, but I consider their management to have been sort of like 
dinosaurs trying to do things the way they did in the 1930s and expecting it to work in the 21st century. And uh, I think you need to custom customize the service to meet the needs of the local residents. And uh, that's something that Greyhound didn't, I guess, feel motivated to do. Uh, but smaller bus services will be able to adjust their schedules to meet the needs of the local population. It's just a matter of getting uh, getting enough people using the bus service in order to ensure there's a profitable opportunity for business people. How po- how much of that equation is the population of some of these smaller towns rising up and saying, hey, listen, uh, what about us? We need bus service to get here and there. Uh, when is that going to happen? Is, is the local voice play a role in this or no? Well, I, I think it does. I think government listens to uh, significant outcries for help, uh, whether it's in the rural area or in the bigger cities. And uh, I haven't seen much of an outcry uh, from rural residents at this point. Uh, you know, if, if they really need to have transportation service, uh, I think they need to make their voices heard a little bit more than what I've heard recently. As, as other things stepped in there, are people getting rides? Are they increasing hitchhiking? Do you anticipate that they're just falling to whatever alternatives are there instead of saying, hey, we need bus service? Well, I, th- I think uh, people are becoming more dependent on their friends and neighbors, and, and uh, I think people are trying to accommodate the needs of their neighbors in, in giving rides, you know, from Cash Creek to Kamloops or down to Vancouver. Uh, there are some sort of ride-hailing services, uh, intercity ride-hailing services that are available. Uh, I haven't tried any or looked into them, but uh, there are quite a number of them online that you can find. And uh, I guess with Uber and Lyft wanting to come to British Columbia, I think some of the uh, recommendations that the all-party committee put forward to government, uh, it sounds like they're meeting some resistance from the transportation minister, Trevina. And, uh, you know, I think the government needs to come to grips with Uh, making the adjustments to insurance so that you can get insurance to provide ride-sharing services. And uh, I think one of the recommendations was that you should just be able to provide the service if you've got a Class 5 driver's license, but the government minister is suggesting, no, it should be a Class 4, the same as a taxi driver, and that's going to significantly restrict the opportunity for people to uh, provide that service to their neighbors. So two things there. Are you saying, did I get you right there, there are ride-hailing companies offering an intercity service currently that you're aware of? I assume that's illegal in the current climate, but... Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it is legal in British Columbia, because uh, those though the people providing that service would not be insured for providing the service if they're doing it for a fee uh generally speaking what happens is uh, you know you, you go online and and express your interest to go from say Kamloops to Vancouver and if somebody responds then you uh, provide them with some assistance for the gas and the travel but uh, it's not a fee for service sort of oh interesting uh, how much do you think uh, ride hailing should it be greenlit tomorrow? How much do you think that could contribute to addressing uh, some of the needs out there that uh, that normally would fall to a bus service? 
Oh, I, I think it'll go a long way. I, and uh, it's a custom service where somebody comes to your door, picks you up, and takes you to your destination. And that's far better than uh, an intercity bus service that, that stops at a bus depot and drops you off at a bus depot. And then you have to make your way to your destination on your own. I think uh, ride hailing uh, is long overdue in British Columbia. And I'm a little disappointed, as many others are, that it seems to be taking so long and and the recommendations of the all-party committee are not being embraced by government. I know your take uh, from Greyhound's perspective was they really pooched it on on the package side of things and allowed uh, big companies to kind of step in and steal away what could have been a a huge industry. They essentially just watched it pass them by. Uh, Other than the movement of people, do you think that the package industry or something along those lines is still a feasible um, business model that, that, you know, independent bus companies can, can jump back in or is that game long lost? I think that game is long lost. The service that's provided by DHL or Loomis or other other carriers uh, that are package express carriers and the ability to track your package online uh, wherever, whenever it's going, uh, I think uh, it would be very difficult for a bus company to compete with what we already have in that service. And uh, for our listeners, what are you doing these days? Uh, trying to get through my honeydew list, but it's getting longer than rather. rather <laughs> <laughs> well, John, uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for taking some time this morning, and uh, we look forward to getting you back on in the future as well. Okay, sounds good, Shane. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, good to hear your voice. Uh, that's former Cash Creek Mayor, former TNRD Chair John Rant, also former longtime Greyhound bus driver, knows a thing or two about what he's talking about on that subject. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll begin the uh, first of two segments on the show dealing with today's ICBC changes. First up, noted ICBA, the ICBC expert Richard McCandless will join us on the other side. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to uh, welcome back to the program uh, the guy behind PC uh, BC Policy Perspectives, noted ICBC expert Richard McCandless. Good morning, Richard. How are you? Uh, good morning. Good to be with you. Yeah, good to have you on. Okay, so as we know today, we're also uh, seeing a rate hike along with a cap on minor injury payouts and the uh, debut of this civil resolution tribunal dealing with uh, accident disputes uh, worth $50,000 and under. Uh, the uh, hook here, as you know, Richard, is to save ICBC about a billion dollars a year as, it, uh, as its fiscal ship is, is fairly swamped at the moment. Um, do you take issue with these changes and the, and the claim that it's going to save all these money? Is this a good move? What's your sort of take on what we're seeing today? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> this was announced almost a year ago, uh, and then they worked out the details, the regulations, and <clears throat> those were announced last November, and this is all now coming together. Um, the, the current model, meaning, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't have said that, the model we just moved out of, which was the uh, full tort model, was clearly unsustainable. It was, we all know that it was uh, ICBC losing over a billion, billion three a year for the last couple of years, and most of that was in the basic insurance. Um, they've governments moved to a hybrid model, which is this cap, the fifty-five hundred dollars, very similar to Alberta. Their cap is just over five thousand, and most other provinces have caps, or they have complete no fault. 
which was uh, the model the government could have moved to but chose not to. Has ICBC done a good job in its financial forecasting over the years and saying, hey, uh, next year we plan on doing this, it's going to save us some money, next year we're going to do that? It's gonna, I mean, have they been on the money so far when they say these things or no? No, they've been wildly off, and uh, that's part of the problem at ICBC. They, they, take, they seem to take an attitude that uh, they don't need to do long-term financial forecasting. The, the system that's set up with the Utilities Commission uh, is on an annual basis. They approve annual rate increases. And ICBC even suggested to the Commission that they, they shouldn't ask for multi-year forecasts that's beyond their mandate, which is just ridiculous. Now, you pointed out in your latest uh, piece something that I wasn't aware of. I know Mr. Eby, the Attorney General, had said that he was going to limit uh, expert advice uh, from uh, in, in, in legal disputes to try and, again, kind of trim those legal costs. Uh, but apparently that's been pushed back. What's, what's the reasoning as far as you can muster? Well, it was challenged. Uh, they did an arbitrary uh, change to an order in council, changing the regulations of the Supreme Court civil rules. And uh, the lawyers challenged them on that, saying, you're not following due process, you're not consulting properly, et cetera, et cetera. And the government, uh, quietly, they didn't announce this, backed down and said, yeah, you're right. And they actually paid the claimant uh, who brought the action (laughs) $30,000 to just go away. And uh, so they have put it all off for at least a year. So there was a lot of talk about saving $400 million, but that ain't going to happen. Unbelievable. Okay, uh, this is something that you've been you've been banging the drum on for quite some time now. When it comes to transparency at ICBC, and especially when they're selling us, okay, listen, we're doing these moves. It's going to save you guys a ton of money. Fantastic. Hooray us. When it comes to transparency and explaining the machinations for some of these reasons, they're still uh, not being clear with us, correct? Yeah, they're, they're very uh, <laughs> opaque when it comes to releasing information and, and, and consistent information. I mean, they put out lots of data, but it's not in any kind of format. There's no analysis, and it, it's very confusing. What's your take on this civil uh, resolution panel to deal with, with accident claims? I mean, there's uh, obviously uh, some legal action launched this morning by trial lawyers who obviously have some skin in the game, uh, saying it's unconstitutional and they're filing a claim as such. Uh, do you think this will, will be a net help? Uh, what's your read on, on this thing? Well, again, I'm, uh, I'm guessing here, but I'm sure that the ICBC and the government lawyers will be arguing, hey, this is very similar to Alberta. Alberta put this through in 2004. It was, uh, it was overturned by their, our equivalent of the Supreme Court in Alberta in 2008, but in 2009, the Court of Appeal in Alberta upheld the whole scheme. And it went to the Supreme Court who refused to of Canada, and they refused to hear the case, meaning they agreed with the Court of Appeal. So it's the argument about being unconstitutional seems kind of weak, given given the Alberta system. Now, the Civil Resolution Tribunal is another matter that Alberta doesn't have uh, to try and take a whole bunch of cases out of the Supreme Court, and and there that may be an area that uh, that they might focus on in terms of this uh, this court case. 
What happens if the changes today don't result in all of the savings that ICBC is selling us on? I mean, you look at their last uh, fiscal record over the last couple of years, it is far, far from pretty. They lost a couple billion dollars in the last couple of years. Uh, if this doesn't work... Sorry, <laughs> three billion. Yeah, three billion. Uh, if this doesn't, if these changes don't work, Richard, what, what then? Well... As I said, the government chose to go this hybrid model, uh, sort of partway between the full tort and the full no-fault. Saskatchewan, uh, Alberta, sorry, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Quebec for their for their basic injury insurance have the no-fault. No-fault's the only other option, and um, it's much simpler and cleaner uh, than what the government chose to do with the civil resolution tribunal and all this extra process. Um, and it's cheaper. Alberta, uh, sorry, I keep saying Alberta. Uh, Manitoba and Saskatchewan, their rates are about 20% cheaper than ours, and the coverage is better than ours for um, what's called Part 7 benefits. And this is your rehab, medical rehab, wage loss, home care, and death benefits. If this doesn't work, if the money doesn't trim, and I know that uh, the Attorney General has been loath to go the full no-fault, uh, he hasn't closed the door. I asked him about this a couple of weeks ago and just said, you know, if, if everything goes to hell... And it, it, well, that's we, their fallback position, right? Yeah. It, do you think that that's what we see next? Okay. Oh, sure. Yeah. The hell with it. We're going no-fault? That's the only thing they can do, and, and, and I'm sure they've told the trial lawyers, you know, you push us on this, and, <laughs> and this is the option, but... Uh, We'll see how it shakes out. What would you like to see on the transparency side? If the Attorney General could make a change there that would be uh, would improve things on that side, what would you like to see? Well, they've got to they've got to produce um, what I will call <clears throat> uh, performance measures and service measures. Service measures is just your basic, you know, volume measures. How many how many policies are we selling? How much is it costing us per policy to uh, settle claims? These are standard measures. And then performance measures are, are key indicators that we can kind of look at quickly and say, are we doing better or are we doing worse? And, and they don't produce any of that. In fact, they've gone to the Utilities Commission and asked to have even less uh, information made available and at a higher level, at the corporate level, not at the basic or optional. It's, it's completely contrary to the whole notion of greater transparency and accountability. Um, we look at other places like BC Hydro or, or WorkSafe BC, and they have uh, very good uh, reports of, of what they're doing. And you can get a good sense not only of the finances, but of the service that they're producing. Uh, you don't get that at ICBC. You don't sound too hopeful about these changes, Richard. I'm telling you, you're not raising my hopes much. Well, I, they're going to save money. There's no mm -hmm. question that they're going to save money. Are they going to save enough money? Maybe. I even suggested that that uh, they might save more than the government's letting on. Mm. Um, but because they're projecting, a f they said that our rates would have gone up around over 40% without these changes. Right. And with these changes, only going up 6%. Well, 40% um, <laughs> in one year is kind of ridiculous um, by my math. Uh, I could see maybe, uh, you know, with the historic loss that they made to make that up plus their growth, maybe maybe 30%. So the difference um, could be this uh, significant profit they will make in the coming year. We have to see. We won't know for at least a year. Yeah, true that. Uh, Richard, always appreciate the chat. Thanks for taking some time this morning. 
Thank you very much. That's Richard McCandless, the guy behind BC Policy Perspectives, noted ICBC expert. And uh, we'll go back into the ICBC thing uh, in a little bit with former Premier Ujol Desange. First up, a quick break to the bottom of the hour. And on the other side, we'll talk to Nisconleth First Nations Chief Judy Wilson. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to welcome to the program this morning uh, the Chief in Nisconleth First Nations, Judy Wilson. Good morning, Judy. How are you? Uh, good morning. So uh, we're going to talk about the Land Titles Office thing, which is why I initially brought you on, but I uh, wanted to talk wildfire first. Uh, a couple of big ones flaring up in your neck of the woods. What's the what's the scene out there today? Everything everything good? Well, uh, over the weekend, we did have some grass fires, and uh, we did uh, contact the uh, forestry and uh, the local Adams Lake uh, uh, Fire Department, and uh, we also had support from Village Chase and uh, we had our counselor Brad Arnoose out on the scene right away, and uh, with Allison Lazon too, she's part of the uh, Village Chase, and they were able to work with the uh, forestry to uh, contain it. Uh, it's pretty much contained, and then they were doing a back burn yesterday in the area just to ensure, you know, that the the uh, fire didn't have any more fuel. Because right now, with the you know, I understand there's about like 11 fires in the in the, in the region, uh, the province, and uh, you know with, what we go through is as soon as it warms up and it's so dry because the less snowpack, so everything's like still really tinder dry. So any kind of spark or fire like that, you know, it'll it'll yeah, burn. Uh, so you know we've been working on you know our integrated emergency plans. And, meeting with CP Rail and highways because and, we're railway, highway belt community, so we have to take in consideration right away uh, infrastructure and then also our community and our housing uh, infrastructure. And I think the only damage on this uh, wildfire was the uh, hydro pulse. Okay. Any idea how these things got going yet, Judy, or no? Well, well I think a lot of people, because of the dryness, the... Uh, and they're worried about, you know, the wildfires as they're trying to burn around their houses. Uh, and we do have, like, some interface work going on with our forestry, with our, our, our band corporations, Kachin. Uh, but, you know, people are trying to take it in their own hands about, you know, making sure that there's the, under, the uh, understory, the built-up fuel they're trying to get rid of. And I think it just has to be a coordinated approach. And, we're going to be sending messages to a message to our community members uh, today, just about you know the concerns of that that needs to be coordinated, and that we are working to, you know to uh, deal with those uh, built-up uh, undergrowth and uh, you know the, the the fuel that's out there. So I think it's just not our community; it's a lot of communities in the same boat, but yeah. a little more coordination and communications would go a long way. 
Yeah, sounds pretty dangerous out there for a little while over the weekend. Uh, glad things didn't spiral too out of control. Okay, um, the land titles office here in Kamloops, as we all know, this has been an issue playing out for the last couple of weeks. Uh, the land registrar says, listen, I, I've got all the authority in the world to move these things. Uh, however, uh, it doesn't sound like any consultation has been done with, with local First Nations, yourself included. Uh, I did talk to Forest Minister Doug Donaldson on Friday, who said he's been in touch with the land titles office, with the land registrar, to ensure that... That, uh, that consultations will happen with First Nations. Obviously, you guys were overlooked off the hop here. First off, have you heard from the land registrar, the land titles office, in the last couple of days? And and if not, is that worrisome? Well, well, it is because we're you know we heard uh, you know if if I didn't get notified uh, by our local MLAs, I wouldn't have been I wouldn't have known. And those records are you know like two hundred year old records that are evidentiary to both our comprehensive claims and our specific claims. So any removal or relocation of those records, uh, you know, there has to be a duty of uh, consultation. But I would uh, actually say I don't want those uh, removed from the region. Uh, I believe those records should stay there. Uh, so that's our position and, you know, from our community, I believe some of the other chiefs wrote, wrote letters as well. And the Union BC Indian Chiefs, uh, I'm a chair of the BC Specific Claims Working Group, and I'm also uh, an alternate to the uh, AFN, the Assembly of First Nations uh, Committee of Chiefs on Land, Territory and Resources, which we deal with comprehensive and specific claims. So we, you know, we wrote a letter in, in, into the uh, province in regard to this issue. And uh, I haven't heard a response back I, uh, from the province, and I haven't heard a response from the uh, BC Land Titles Office either. And I was trying to get to the bottom of it, uh, you know, they're saying, well, the Liberals set up that program to be at arm's length, the government, and then the entities saying, well, no, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's uh, what the Liberals have done. And then, you know, I was trying to get to the solution where, you know, well, who exactly is responsible for this? And it sounds like, you know, the Land Title Office is saying they have the authority, but then who are they accountable, you know, to the province, so just trying to sort all of that out too. Uh, but I think uh, with our First Nations, our position is that those land title records not to be removed. Why do you think you guys weren't consulted with beforehand, which I'm a little mystified about. Uh, it sounds like, and I've talked to some some other chiefs in the region, and they're they're emphasizing how important these records are for for First Nations uh, rights of title and claim and land claims for water rights for all of this stuff. Uh, it seems to me that somebody should have made a call or at least addressed the question before a decision was made. Uh, any idea why you guys were overlooked in this? Well, because uh, what I'm being, uh, what I'm understanding is that the land title office is, is arm length to government, uh, but I'm saying arm's length of uh, to government doesn't mean they still do not hold that duty of consultation and consent uh, to our indigenous people. So I think that's what the problem is: is they've been severed uh, from the province. And it's like any of those crown agencies like uh, BC Hydro and TELUS and all these other uh, crown agencies uh, that think they do not have hold those responsibilities. So that's the problem I think we're, we're looking at here. And that has to be rectified because, uh, you know, they, they have, they're saying they have total authority. And, and I'd really like to question that and 
check in that, but they also hold legal duties and obligations for those, uh, you know, for, for the records that they do have. And also there's the one other thing we're working on uh, through nationally was that uh, access to information uh, legislation. There were some uh, amendments uh, with that, so that comes into question with that too in regard to accessing the information and data once, you know, if they're locate, relocating it to Victoria. So there's a lot of issues that are brought to the forefront and I'd really say, like to say the Lands Title Office has been handling this in, a, in an improper way and a prejudicial way. Uh, last question to you. Uh, what should, how should consultations look like? Are we talking, would you be happy with a phone call? Uh, does, does, the, does the registrar need to come up here and meet with you guys face-to-face? What do you want to see from him? Well, I think it's escalated to a high level now, so I'll be talking with uh, our other fellow chiefs to see what, what they're thinking, but I really think it has to escalate to the highest level possible. And uh, right now they should halt and cease uh, any removal or any plans for relocating those records out of the Camels region. Uh, that's what I would uh, uh, call for. And that we actually need to have the support of the city and, uh, you know, the members in the, uh, the residents and any of the historical societies and any of the other uh, organizations, uh, you know, to call for the halt of that uh, uh, plans to uh, relocate those records to Victoria. Yeah. Uh, Judy, thanks so much for uh, for chatting with us this morning. Really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Okay, yeah. Bye. That's Judy Wilson. She is the chief in Nisconleth First Nations discussing uh, the wildfires that popped up out there over the weekend, some uh, scary situation for a little while, as well as her concerns around the land titles office, the removal of records from Kamloops down to Victoria. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. We'll finish up former Premier Ujjal Dosanjh joining us next, turning his guns on the NDP government of the day. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined on the program by a former premier of this province and former uh, federal MP as well, uh, Ujjal Dosanjh, who joins us on the phone as he's traveling in India. Good morning, Mr. Dosanjh. How are you? Good. I'm well, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, okay, so the reason you're on is because uh, you're you're taking up the torch uh, today. ICBC is making some major changes. Uh, civil tribunal to process claims $50,000 and under for injuries and crashes. Uh, they're also changing the way the legal system works and, and capping soft, uh, soft uh, tissue injuries, minor injuries, those kinds of things. Uh, the Trial Lawyers Association is set to launch a constitutional challenge if it has not already been filed this morning, uh, and you're speaking up on their behalf. So uh, what's your interest in this? Well, I have no interest in this uh, other than the fact that I'm a former WCB claimant. It's now called WorkSafe. used to be called Workers' Compensation of British Columbia. I injured my back, my spinal, I had spinal fusion back in 1970. I wasn't qualified to do anything else. I could never do any heavy work, but I got $112 a month pension that I get today. Um, and, and that is what you get when you get serious injuries, um, and you have, uh, uh, compensation limits or caps imposed on them and, 
as well, uh, you don't have the right to go to court. You have to act. It's a reverse onus. You have to actually prove that you have the right to go to court because you have a serious injury. This is an absolute negation of one's fundamental right to seek justice in the courts in British Columbia. And now as part of the changes, I believe the definition of what constitutes a minor injury has been expanded. Uh, Critics say it now covers some 80% of all injuries ICBC sees in a crash, including concussions and some brain injuries. Do you anticipate that that part of it alone is fairly concerning as the government decides what a minor injury is? Oh, absolutely. What you're going to have is, is, you know, scores of cases going to court um, to uh, try and uh, get over the threshold into the Supreme Court of British Columbia to be able to litigate real issues. Um, And who is going to suffer? You're going to have the poor, uh, the um, vulnerable, and the disabled that in the end suffer. Rich can always find ways of getting over the thresholds, hiring lawyers. Um, It's the poor and the disabled and the vulnerable that won't have the capacity to hire private lawyers to challenge the threshold limits. This is a negation of what Dave Barrett did. Dave Barrett brought in this uh, insurance corporate of British Columbia to ensure that each and every British Columbian driver was properly insured and that each and every victim of an injury in British Columbia was properly compensated. And if wasn't, if it wasn't, if he or she wasn't compensated, that they were able to go to court um, to challenge um, what the ICBC was offering them. And now what you have is a a draconian scheme, uh, absolutely undemocratic, that diminishes people's rights to go to court. Um, They could have found another way of dealing with it. There are all sorts of ways that you deal with road safety um, and different successive governments have been bleeding the insurance corporation of British Columbia over the years. And now you have a crisis and who are they punishing? They're punishing the victims uh, for whom this system was uh, set up in the first place. The reverse side of that coin, though, would be there's there's definitely some evidence and certainly a perception that people have taken advantage of the system, have used the courts to leverage it to get money that they shouldn't uh, have otherwise received, essentially using ICBC as, a, as an ATM. Um, if well, that, well, well that, that, that would suggest to me that courts are somehow blind and are being manipulated. We have independent judiciary in British Columbia. Uh, you know, I, I find that argument absolutely puzzling that courts are being taken advantage of by people who go to courts and that the government is somehow losing in that fight when they have deep pockets. I find that argument absolutely astonishing. Mm. Um ICBC, of course, is hemorrhaging money, and that's part of the reason the government, or at least that's what the government is selling these changes on, saying it's going to save about a, a billion dollars a year. We'll have, we've yet to see if, uh, if that will, in fact, play out. But um, they're doing this to cut back on legal costs. Uh, considering the financial position, Ujjal, if you're, if you're not going to cut the money or find the money on the legal front, uh, how do you write the fiscal ship at ICBC? Because that's the crux of the problem here. Well, you know, if, if you're going to mandate public auto insurance, um, and then take away people right, people's rights to go to court um, and seek justice uh, to ensure that the, the books are balanced uh, and somehow we find the money, 
then I would suggest that the go- it's about time that the government set up the the basic standards of insurance that people people in British Columbia should have, and they should allow them the right to go to courts, um, because tort has been a right for centuries, and this government is taking away that right because we decided to do public auto insurance. I find nothing wrong with the public auto insurance. It's wonderful the way it was set up, the way it's now being bastardized with the current uh, amendments. Uh, it, it is neither private uh, nor just. It, it's neither public nor just. One of the other changes, of course, as you reference, is the Civil Resolution Tribunal handling uh, claims $50,000 and under. Um, I've heard from some critics saying, listen, uh, this thing is brand new. They don't have the experience or the capacity to deal with this kind of stuff, which is a concern all of itself. Would you agree with that or no? Absolutely. And you're going to have a huge new bureaucracy, uh, which is going to flourish under this law, and that you're going to have all kinds of challenges mushrooming in the courts to its authority and to try and pass the threshold uh, to go into the Supreme Court of British Columbia. I mean, this government is spawning a whole new industry with this legislation, while at the same time curtailing people's basic rights to go to courts to seek justice. I don't understand it. As a former uh, workers' compensation um, uh, client, uh, you know, I have been suffering all my life. I have a spinal fusion, get $112 a month pension today. And, uh, and that's the kind of system you're setting up essentially. How much blame goes on uh, governments uh, of the past who have used ATM or used ICBC to balance the budget, pulling out, um, you know, dividends out of uh, both it and BC Hydro to essentially use it as, as a bank machine to, to balance the books? Is there, is there a portion of blame that goes on them for abusing this, this institution or no? Oh, I, no, not just portion of the blame. A significant portion of the blame should be attributed to all governments of all stripes, they have all raided uh, the kitty at ICBC. They've impoverished ICBC, and now they're saying, it's not our fault, it's your fault, so we're going to penalize you. You won't have the rights you used to have, although you're paying higher premiums. Uh, do you ultimately think that the court action launch today is going to be successful? Does it stand on good legal ground in your mind? I, I, I haven't looked at the legal arguments. I understand the basic arguments. Uh, you know, the courts might invalidate the, um, uh, the, the legislation. They might declare it null and void. The government will at that time have the option of amending it to make it constitutional or restoring the rights of the people that they've, that they've taken away. Uh, I don't know what they will do at that time. Uh, considering you're a former NDP premier of this province, and I, I know that you're not the favorite person among current NDPers uh, with, the, with the run as a Liberal Member of Parliament, but um, do you anticipate this is going to cause the fact that you're weighing into this is going to cause some consternation in, in the NDP camp or no? It, well, well, no. I mean, they, they've brought in the changes. Um, they've known my view. Uh, my view has been very clear. Uh, as a former uh, uh, claimant of workers' compensation, uh, with a broken back in a lumber mill, I suffered uh, all my life. I've, you know, my current pension is, I, I got, my pension started at $19 a month back in uh, 1970. I now get $110 or $12 a month. 
And this is the kind of system they're essentially setting up. It's not the same system, but it's very similar in the fundamental denial of the basic rights to go to court to seek justice. Uh, well, I got you. Just a slight change of topic. I know uh, your past as a Liberal Member of Parliament, and I know that you have suffered from uh, extremist action and, and, and hate that, is, uh, that has hit you personally. I'm just curious what you think of the federal climate today and this sort of rise of the extreme right, the white nationalism, um, the partisan divide that, that seems to be more and more sort of poisoning the political will or well. Uh, do, do you find sort of the current climate concerning here in Canada or no? I, I find it very concerning, whether it's the right-wing nationalism uh, or whether it's the Islamism or fundamentalist Khalistani politics, or any other kind of politics. I find it very uh, concerning that politicians of many stripes, in fact of all stripes, many politicians of all stripes have shied away from criticizing uh, some of us in Canada uh, that, that belong to uh, those kinds of groups that create these problems. And we need public leadership. We need strong public leadership on a non-partisan basis to say to anyone, the right-wing nationalists or the Khalistani fundamentalists who want a separate state out of India, or uh, to the Islamists, that Canada isn't a place where we would allow them to breed their kind of attitudes. How do we do that? Because I think that's something we're all sort of struggling with. It's definitely there, it's concerning, but how do you tackle it head-on and do what you just suggested? Well, you do it by speaking up. And most politicians in Canada, uh, to my utter dismay, have not done that. Some of them, some of them have, um, you know, uh, several, I mean, some of the political parties have some of those very people of different orientations amongst them. Not necessarily elected, some elected, maybe not elected, but they're there. And, and, you know, uh, that's called pandering. And Canada, in politics in Canada, is, is quite famous for pandering to these kinds of groups. And I've been arguing that politicians should stop pandering to these groups, stand up, speak straight uh, to the issues, and say, in Canada, any kind of fundamentalist uh, extremist views, whether religious or political, aren't welcome. And uh, politicians, you know, to my uh, um, disappointment, haven't done that, generally speaking. What's the end result, Ujjal? I mean, you've seen this play out elsewhere. Uh, What's the end result if we don't take a strong stance and and allow this poisonous flower to sort of flourish here? The end result is that we'll be at war with each other. We would not have the kind of harmonious, freedom-loving, progressive, uh, a democratic society that we've had. You know, I, can, I uh, went to Canada in 1968. It's a wonderful society, far better than it was in the 1900s, far better than it was even the 1960s when I got there. We've been making progress. But what you point to uh, can take us in the opposite direction. And the politicians haven't, uh, haven't stood up to this as strongly and as vociferously as I would have expected them to do. Yeah, amen to that. Mr. DeSange, I've taken too much of your time this morning, and I know you're, you're far away and probably want to get back to your travels, but thanks for taking a few minutes and joining us on the phone.
Thank you very much. And that was former NDP Premier Ujjal Dosanjh speaking out today against the changes made at ICBC and speaking for a legal challenge that's been launched, a constitutional challenge against those changes. And that brings to an end today's Whitford Show. See you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Chuswa from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.